This passage is the next in a series of a picture of outward movement of the church in the book of Acts. As we see the gospel go from the church that was something unique to Jerusalem and began to become a movement that would encompass, by the time of Jesus' eventual return, every tribe, tongue, and nation in the world. And we've talked a lot about how to do church in the last series and um, we even did it as our first sermon back as we jump back into our verse by verse study in Acts but now we're getting to the stuff that really gets me fired up and made me want to become a pastor and church planter and give my life to the cause of the gospel to begin with the outward facing ministry of the gospel of Jesus Christ look I, I love the church when we came together as two churches, it was a step of faith for everyone involved, and it was a step of faith that has been and is continuing to be blessed. By necessity, we needed to regroup, pay attention, and look at things like, what is this thing going to look like? And the early chapters of Acts were perfect for that, because in a lot of ways, that's kind of what they were going through in the early chapters of the book of Acts. They had a bunch of different people coming together for the first time thinking, what is this thing called church? What is it that we're doing? What do we do when we have this group of strangers begin to come together for the first time? And I'm not saying that we're done asking those questions, but I am saying that I'm not going to stay there, and I'm excited to move beyond there. Any organization that just sits around and talks about the organization will begin to die. That's a fact, Jack. So you can take that to the bank. It begins to wither very quickly. I'm excited to start to get into the stuff that's fired me up since the first day that I've been a Christian. And um, oh man, it just felt so good preparing for this message of feeling me again. So um, we're going to be sharing about how the good news of the King Jesus is intended to permeate every corner of this world and every corner of our lives. And that's exactly where we're at in the book of Acts. So it's timely. Jesus told the disciples in the very first chapter that they would be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. But as the book began, it all took place in the epicenter in Jerusalem. Then, with the arrest and trial and martyrdom of Stephen, it began to cause the church to leave Jerusalem and flee, taking the gospel with them and being witnesses in Judea and Samaria as they went along, as we began to look at last week. This week, we begin to see the gospel begin to penetrate the uttermost parts of the earth. And I want you to take note of some things before we unfold the text because I think these things are timeless and we can benefit tremendously from them still. And uh, ironically, Pastor Tim, you told me uh, this week that you don't like it when a pastor tells you all of their points ahead of time before they preach them because it makes you just feel like you could just get up and leave and not listen to the message. Frankly, that won't hurt my ego. So if you want to do that afterwards, then um, we can call this morning a short one. So um, just a couple of things to pay close attention to. The role of the Holy Spirit in evangelism. The willingness of these servants to be used by the Spirit. The posture of humility that we see just permeating this passage and how the Spirit works when humble people humble themselves and share the gospel. The way the Spirit uses the simple reading of His Word to magnify the person of Jesus. And the way that the Spirit both empowers the saints to reach the lost 
and calls the saved to rejoice and worship. And there's just so much good stuff in this text. I hope we're able to glean everything that we can um, because some of these truths are just as poignant today, maybe even more so than ever. And if you want to begin to see how the gospel permeates this area and begin to see a wave of mission that builds momentum as it moves along, it's right here. The principles are timeless. I mean, does anybody else... This isn't rhetorical. Like, I, I, I give my life for this question. That's how not rhetorical it is. Does anybody else believe that we're going to see a revival in our day? Does anybody else drop to their knees and ever cry out and say, there must be more than this. This can't, this can't be it, God. Or does anybody else believe that the gospel can sweep through Tom's River, and Jesus can be more famous than Snooky. I mean, does anybody believe that that's actually possible? Um, does anybody really want to believe that deep down that someday we're going to see something more than the nominal Christianity that has permeated our culture for way too long, and that we are going to awake from our slumber and see an expansion of the church that is going to be historical, and we are going to see it in our day and age. That's why I went into the ministry, not to play church, not to run programs, not to do busy work. I don't care about that stuff. It can all die for all I care. I went into ministry because I want to see people saved, joining at the marriage supper of the Lamb, and rejoicing in the name of Jesus for all of eternity. And that's what this text is about. So, Verse 25, which is interesting because it's just kind of like a Passover in between two different passages. It really could be looked at as the mission statement of the book of Acts when you think about it. It says, Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel in many villages of the Samaritans. So verse 25 is really just a continuation of what we looked at last week, but I want to start with it because it sets the table for the main point of this passage that everywhere a Christian goes, they take the gospel with them. Last week, we saw that due to the persecution in Jerusalem that the church was being scattered. So they fled from Jerusalem and they took the gospel with them as they went. We began to see the outward expansion of the church and they began to make disciples in areas where there previously were not any. And folks, that's what it means to make a disciple. We've recrafted that meaning and, and especially in the reformed world, we'd love to take, make disciple meaning we take someone that is already a Christian and we just make you better because we're infinitely wise. But that's not what it meant in that context and we're not infinitely wise. And some of them stayed and established a church in that area. And some of them went and began planting churches outside of Jerusalem. But according to verse 25, others felt called to return and others felt called to go elsewhere. And as they went, they took the gospel with them. It says that they went along and they preached the gospel in many more villages. Sharing the gospel was not an event. Sharing the gospel was not a program that you invited people to. It was part of the very fabric of who a Christian was. And when it's something that is a part of who you are, guess what? You take who you are with you everywhere you go. I remember when I was a young man growing up right here in Bricktucky, and I used to just 
get arrested on a weekly basis. That was my hobby. And um, no offense to the few brick cops that we have here in our midst. I love you now, but I didn't then. I, 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 I thought that you were the problem. And I never even considered the fact that this thing beating in my chest, my heart, might be the problem. So my solution was I just need to move and everything will be okay. But guess what happened when I moved? When I moved, I got in the same trouble, just in a different place. They must have called ahead and told them <laughs> I was coming, right? So I, I would try to move elsewhere, but man, those, those brick cops, they'd call there too. And I get in the same results again. You know why? Because when I left this area, I took me with me. And everywhere I went, I took me with me. Changing locations does not change who you are. So as I went, I took who I was to each new location. And we see the positive end of that with these new young Christians. They're new creations in Christ. These had become a gospel people, and they took that with them everywhere that they went. Everybody's always wanting to find out, how do we return back? How do we become the church of Acts again? How do we see the things that we saw manifested in the book of Acts happen in our lifetime? You want to know the grand missional strategy of the book of Acts? I mean, you can spend so much money buying these programs that are going to make you the new cutting-edge missional church and a bunch of other adjectives that are stupid that don't make sense or you could just go back and look at the grand missional strategy here in the book of Acts which was people were radically changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ because they had a radical encounter with the person of Jesus Christ and everywhere they went they took the gospel with them and the message was preached and it was backed up by the power of a spirit empowered life and each person lived with a unique sense of their own sentness to the places that they were called. That's it. That's the strategy of the book of Acts. There's not going to be another chapter we get to where you're like, now here's the 84-part system that we need to apply in order to become that church. Nothing has changed. That's still how we make disciples. Guys, when you leave here is when you're entering your various mission fields. And if you're a new creation in Christ, guess what? You take that new creation with you when you walk out these doors. And if you've embraced the good news, guess what? The good news goes with you as you walk out these doors. And as a Christian, you are supposed to be keenly aware of your own sentness everywhere you go. You did not end up there by accident, but a sovereign God has chosen and appointed that you would be there because you are uniquely sent by a God who rules and reigns over everything. It amazes me how much the church deviates from the pattern you see in Acts, but then they say that they want to see the results that you see here in the book of Acts. I mean, it's like punching yourself in the face and wondering why you have a headache. When did, when did outreach become something that was just reduced to things that we do in a church building that we expect people that have no interest in Jesus to attend? And I'm not saying that that never works. There's people that have gotten saved that way. There are examples of it working, but it's shrinking. And it's working less and less. And there's no examples of it in the book of Acts. Just so you know, you can read the whole book. You won't find that 
pattern. And that pattern over and over in the book of Acts is what you read here in verse 25. The people went out, and when they went out, they took the gospel with them. The people were messengers, and they, were, they took the message to the people. They didn't just sit back and expect that the people would come to you to hear the good news. And we live in a similar climate to the book of Acts. People are not attracted to the church, folks. Doesn't matter how cool the sign is that you have out front. Doesn't matter how catchy the slogan is. Faith book, you've got an invitation. Oh, let me get saved! Because that's so clever. It doesn't work like that, folks. People drive by and roll their eyes just like I do. So instead... They went out and they shared it in the various villages as they went. Family, everywhere we go, the gospel goes with us. And that's so much more powerful than any program that you could ever institute at your church. Creating an everybody who is a Christian, is a missionary culture, is infinitely more powerful than creating an event-driven culture. Can I repeat that so that everybody here can get that? And you could, if somebody says, what did Pastor preach on this morning? You could, you could repeat it too. Creating in everybody who is a Christian as a missionary culture is infinitely more powerful and effective than creating an event-driven culture. And I know that stretches us when, when we hear that. It's a lot easier for somebody else to put on an event and you to show up to it than to risk rejection or persecution or any of the other things that go along with making yourself vulnerable and sharing the gospel. But if that's stretching, then what we see in this next verse, the gospel call is going to be stretched a little bit more. Look at verses 26 through 30. It says, Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south, to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. When he rose and went, there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch of the court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all of her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship. And he was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you are reading? And I love this text. It's the first occurrence of the Spirit challenging somebody to foreign missions in the entire book of Acts. Just so you know, up until then, it was a very Jerusalem-centric movement that you see in there. And the recent spread of the gospel was more due to self-preservation than really any kind of subjective sense of calling, of wanting to go and reach the uttermost. But now the Spirit is miraculously calling somebody to what he said he would back in Isaiah chapter 6 to get up and go. And the Spirit calls Philip. This is not Philip the Apostle, just so you know. This is a man who history has recorded as being known as Philip the Evangelist. There was a Philip who was a part of the original 12, and then there's this other Philip who is one of the original seven deacons that we read about in Acts 6. And I want to make a distinction between them for a few reasons. One, because I'm teaching the passage, and I want you to understand this passage when you go and read it in your own Bibles, but also because Philip was no apostle. He was just a common knucklehead like me or you with a passion for evangelism. Turn with me for a moment to Ephesians chapter 4, but stay in, in Acts 8. Keep your finger there. And look with me at verses 11 through 13. It says, And he gave apostles 
the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. Do you notice all those different roles that it says he, meaning God, gave to the church? Somewhere along the way, the distinction in those roles has been blurred and has been forgotten. And I think that it's time that we rediscover them the way that Josiah had to rediscover the book of the law because I think that they're just about that lost. Alan Hurst said in his wonderful book, The Forgotten Ways, we unbiblically combine all five of these roles, apostle, prophet, evangelist, shepherd, teacher, and we call it pastor. And it's one of the major reasons that we rarely see the fruit that we saw in the early church of Acts. The premise of his book is this, don't do things in an unbiblical manner, but then expect biblical results of biblical proportions. It's time that we uncover the forgotten ways. I agree with Hirsch that one of the main reasons that we've rolled everything into the role of pastor is because it reduces the unique call on the people that were sent. Like this guy fit into the role of evangelist that you saw there in Ephesians 4.11. And if we reduce the role of those who are sent, we could just look at everything and shuffle it into, well, that's the pastor's job. I think it's also one of the main reasons for the insanely high statistics of pastoral burnout. You know that pastors have the second longest, people that go into vocational ministry that say that that's what they want to do for their lifetime. There's only one job that retains their employees for a lesser amount of time, and that's NFL football player. And then pastors is number two. Think, think about that. It, it's pathetic. Um, it's because we've combined five roles into one and asked the pastor to wear five hats that he wasn't supposed to. And if you look at the passage, it never says that any of these roles were supposed to even wear the hat as if it was some sort of title. Like I walk in and I've got the apostle hat on and you've got your evangelist hat on. It's not supposed to be like that. There's supposed to be a gift that the Lord had given to them to equip the body, it says in verse 12, so that you, you could carry out the work of the ministry. So if you're wanting to see how Tom's River is going to be reached with the gospel, there's the strategy right there. It's amazing. Ephesians agrees with Acts. It's almost like they were put together on purpose. And ironically, most pastors I've met rarely even engage in evangelism. According to D. James Kennedy, he said that in training a group of a thousand pastors, he found that most of those pastors had not evangelized an unbeliever in the last year when he had met with them. Wrap your minds around that and think about where tithe dollars are going because they're too busy doing the work of propping up unbiblical churchianity. So yet again, we insert programs where the simple and forgotten ways once existed, and we wonder why we don't see the results of biblical proportions that we're praying for in the book of Acts. If we want to see biblical results of biblical proportions, we have to let the Bible instruct our methodology of reaching the culture to go beyond these four walls. Amen? Are we in agreement with that? So let me just point out something that's really close to my heart before we move along. To actually see what you're going to, what you read about in verse 25 take place might not end up looking very churchy, okay? 
These people they were reaching, Samaritan was just code word for big, gigantic wreck of a mess. Okay, these are messy people. Uh, what's more important? Really, I, I want to know if you're going to join us in this mission, what's more important to you? Having a comfortable, safe Christian ghetto or actually reaching the world for Jesus, even though it might look messy and uncomfortable. And I'm convinced that most churches look more like Christian ghettos than biblical churches. Are you willing to take on the messiness of the people around you to reach them with the gospel like Jesus did, who hung out with tax collectors and prostitutes so that he could get the message of the gospel out there? And I've been pressing pretty hard, so as we move along, let me point out something that's, that's encouraging. God was already moving and going ahead of Philip. It's not like Philip was manufacturing the ministry here. He was just joining in what the Spirit was doing. And that's really what this whole book of Acts is about. That's why we named the series the Acts of the Holy Spirit. I have no idea who looked at this book and came up with a title, The Acts of the Apostles, and it's stuck for 2,000 years, and nobody's taken like a crayon and written over that and just said, that's a stupid name. We need to change it. The apostles are chess pieces. They're, they're, they're vessels. They're, they're witnesses. What you're seeing here is an act of the Holy Spirit. I truly believe that when people ask what the biggest reason is as to why the church is so different today from the ministry in the book of Acts is the reason right here. People want to create ministry. When there is so much opportunity for ministry just naturally right outside your door when you walk out of your house every day. I remember when I first started to break free from this mission is an event kind of mindset, and I just started to get these truths. Somebody came up to me, and I was preaching a message sort of like this, and they were like, wow, this stuff is, this stuff is radical. The only thing that's radical about it is that it's radically simple. There's no strategy to it that's radical. Instead of 200 people working together to create an environment-driven, event-driven, Christian ghetto culture, you have 200 people going out and taking the gospel into where they live, work, and play. It's really just simple mathematics. Which one is going to be exponentially greater? That's not radical. It's, it's addition. It's, it's have you ever like sat and taught your kid addition when they're in first grade and be like, this stuff is radical. That's all you have going on here. Instead of them all being one cluster and being like, oh, I hope all six million people come to us. They just went out and went to them. And if we're going to open up our lives to divine opportunity, the people you encounter along the way might surprise you. I'm sure that Philip was surprised by this encounter. Look at verses 27 through 30 again. It says, let me get there again. It says, and he rose and went, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch of the court office of Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, and he was in charge of all of her treasure. And goes on to say, this was a man of great means. And Philip likely was not. 
He lived a pretty transient lifestyle, this guy Philip the Evangelist. He had very few things holding him down or encumbering him. And I wonder all the time if people are just too encumbered by the complexity to live out the beautiful and radical biblical simplicity that you see in this passage. And that applies to me as well. Sometimes I get frustrated by how encumbered my life can be. And how much time I spend as a pastor just doing churchianity type stuff. And, it, and those are the times when I just end up freaking out and say, this isn't what I got into this for. There's something better than this. God has called us to something higher than this. And the Spirit reminds me in His gentle way, you're the one that chose to make it that way. You're the one that chose to say yes to the expectations that you accuse others of putting on you. You know, you could have said no if you wanted to. No, no is a word that we don't really use in our culture anymore, but back to our text. This man that the Lord used was a man of great means. You see a little detail on that in verse 27. You see that this guy was a court official of the Candace of, Candace of Ethiopia. Most, Ethiopia uh, most historians believe that Candace traced back to the Queen of Sheba who came and visited Solomon a thousand years earlier than this text. And then she took back some of the knowledge of the one true God to Ethiopia when she went. So that must have trickled down through the ages because this guy is coming to Jerusalem to worship. And he has a copy of the scriptures, which is no small thing. So you have this wealthy court official the direct servant, the overseer of the treasure of a powerful queen sitting in a chariot reading his Bible in a time when nobody had Bibles. So to put yourself in Philip's shoes, picture getting like called to the UN building. And you see some wealthy delegate sitting there in a tinted out limo and you just roll up on him and start preaching the gospel. So that's sort of like what you have going on here. And let me point out because it's right here, that people of great means need the gospel just as much as those without means. I remember when I went to Moody, and it's a school in Chicago, I would sit on our rooftop and I would pray over the city of Chicago every morning. And Moody was uniquely and strategically placed in the city of Chicago. We were one block over from Cabrini-Green. And if you're familiar with Cabrini-Green, it's one of the poorest neighborhoods in this entire country. It's a really rough neighborhood. And we were just a few blocks from the Gold Coast. And if you're not familiar with the Gold Coast, some of the highest real estate in the country is on the Gold Coast. And it was just pouring out my heart, lifting up my hand, praying over Cabrini-Green that the Lord would just send something, some way to go and reach the poverty-stricken area of Cabrini. And in one of those moments that's just kind of like those things that you just never forget, my buddy Jeff turned to me and said, are all those wealthy people who live, work, and play down on the Gold Coast not just as in need of a Savior as the people living in Cabrini-Green? Do they need Jesus any less? And And I remember being stunned. Brothers and sisters, look, you are the 1%, whether you realize it or not, or whether you want to admit it or not. But if you have a global worldview, you are the 1%. 
living in this area. People of wealth need the gospel just as much as people in abject poverty. The only difference between the wealthy and the poor is the wealthy can get to work building their kingdom on this earth and it will last for 70 or 80 years and then it's all over and then they stand at the same level playing field as the object poor when they stand before the throne of Jesus someday. I sometimes hear excuses as to why people are so hard or why it's so hard to reach people with the gospel in this area because people think that they already have it all. Well, guess what? This guy already had it all. He was a man of great means and he needed Jesus in the same way that we do. So it's our job as missionaries to dismantle the idea that people can build a kingdom on earth and to show them that they were made for a kingdom that is eternal, that blows the doors off of any silly little Plato kingdom that they're going to build here on this earth. And just a little side note before we move on, but there's one word in this text that really ministered to me, and and it's worth sharing as we talk about this role as living as a sent people to the Jersey Shore. Philip, well, let me read verse 30. You see if you pick out the word that ministered to me so much. So Philip ran to him. Anybody know the word that I'm going to point out? (laughs) Want to take a guess? Philip was excited to share the good news. It says that Philip ran to this guy. I feel like for too long evangelism has been taught in this guilt-centered way that makes it feel as if it's supposed to be this obligatory action. Look, I'm going to be real with you. I, I was deeply convicted by this little word, ran. When I think about the ways that I've been taught evangelism over the years, it's no wonder that intimidates so many. If you went to the Bible school that I went to, it was like a weekly thing that they'd hold up a picture of some poor kid in Africa and be like, hey, you with the Starbucks in your hand. They would feed this kid for a whole month. Thanks for killing this kid. They'd be like, oh man, that really moves my heart to want to go and evangelize. You can't guilt somebody or condemn somebody into having a passion to share the gospel. And why would you want to anyway? It's not fun to guilt people. Do you like seeing a bunch of slumped over, guilty, condemnation-ridden people? I, I don't. Our job as a preacher is to present the gospel as something that is so infinitely beautiful that you are captivated by it and you want to go and share it. And that word ran actually makes sense to you when you read it in this text. There is nothing in this text that even hints at obligatory evangelism. This was not guilt-centered. This was joyful. This guy ran to go and tell this man the hope that he had found in Jesus. Is just me or is that radically different than the way that most teaching on evangelism is usually presented? I mean, maybe you guys have been under different teaching. So, um, but... There's four things that I want to point out about the way that Philip presented Jesus. Look at verses 30 through 38, and hopefully we could take some practical stuff from Philip's approach and posture here. It says, so Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come and sit with him. Now, the passage of scripture that he was reading was this, like a sheep that was led to the slaughter and a lamb before its shearer is silent. He opens not his mouth. 
In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life was taken from this earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does this prophet say this? Is that just everybody's dream in evangelizing or what? (laughs) I've been waiting for that day. (laughs) Hey, let me tee up the gospel for you and then ask you who it's talking about. Um, Then Philip opened his mouth and began with the scripture. He told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, there's water. What prevents me from being baptized? And we'll go on a little bit more after that. But the first thing that I wanted to point out about the posture that Philip used and the way that he presented Jesus is he used what this man already knew, and he leveraged it. Philip doesn't start from scratch in this passage. He takes what the guy knows to be true about God, and he uses that as a starting point to be able to share about the good news of Jesus. I, I debated on whether I wanted to say this or not. And usually when I debate on whether I want to say something, I say it anyway and, and then regret it. So we'll see how it goes. Um, I hear too many evangelicals bash Catholics in this area. Look, I I don't agree with most of the teachings of the Catholic Church. But I also know that you're likely not going to win an opportunity to share the gospel with somebody by bashing them and bashing what they believe in. If your technique for sharing Christ with a Catholic person is to say something like, hey, you guys pray to Mary and that's stupid and why do you have 13 books in your Bible that we don't have? You might want to tweak your technique. A little bit, all right? (laughs) In my years of living in the Catholic Northeast, which has been most of my life, I've yet to hear somebody say, you know what? The way that you trashed Mary and the saints and those 13 books in our Bible that you don't know any more about than we do really makes me want to know your Jesus. (laughs) I've never seen it happen, yet I've sat under... So much Catholic bashing over the years. Instead of starting with bashing, do what Philip did and start with what's common, with what they already know. Hey, you believe that Jesus was the Son of God? Guess what? So do I. Hey, you, whether you've read it or not, believe that the Bible was a unique book and that there's something special about it? Guess what? So do I. You believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins? We're getting warmer. So do I. But let me tell you just how awesome what Jesus really did on the cross for you really is. Because I think you might be missing a little something. And it might sound little to you, but it's not little because it's really big. It's not our works plus Jesus that save you. Because Jesus plus anything equals nothing. And Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Jesus did it all because we can't. And whether we have the same amount of books in our Bibles or not, we do both have this book called Isaiah. And in that book, in your Bible and mine, it says that all of your deeds are like filthy rags. And you can't impress God enough to be able to get to heaven with those deeds. So it can't be our works because it says in both of our Bibles that you'll never be good enough to be able to work your way there. But it tells us in both of our Bibles that we don't have to work our way to get there because Jesus accomplished that work fully on the cross and then said, it is finished. 
And you can read it in your Bible too. It's in, we don't have di- different texts on that. It says the same thing. So whether we either trust in his works or we trust in ours, but it can't be both. So as your friend, I'm asking you to consider whose works are you trusting in? Are you trusting in yours? Which both of our Bibles said can't get you there. Or are you trusting in his, which were already perfect and got you there if you only believe and put your faith in him and he'll give you eternal life? Which do you think they're more likely to listen to? That or, hey, stop worshiping Mary, that's stupid. Which do you think is more likely to be an effective tactic? Start with what they already know and build from there. The second thing I want to point out is this whole passage is drenched in humility. Look, Philip just comes over and asks him a humble question. Hey, buddy, what you reading? That's not so hard, right? Can everybody here do this? I'm being, I'm being real because, uh, I mean, it, James is pretty clear that if you're saying yes, you can, then you're expected to. So you might not want to just you know, laugh and say yes and then be like, hey, yes, we can all do it, but I'm not going to because there's consequences. Like, can everybody do that? Can you just say, hey, buddy, what you reading? I think we're all capable. I, I trust in you. And I think each one of you can ask that question to somebody. And then the guy gives a humble answer. He says, yeah, this is what I'm reading, but I don't know how to make heads or tails of this. How am I supposed to interpret if nobody comes over here and helps me? And guess what takes place after that? A humble dialogue. I remember when I first got saved, I used to love watching guys listening uh, or watch debates on YouTube. And if anybody is a sinner like this, I hope you feel convicted when I share this. And I used to love watching like, someone like Paul Washer and be like, oh man, that guy really just put those people in their place. Now that style makes me want to throw up in my mouth. When's the last time you felt compelled to go deeper into a topic because somebody made you feel stupid and put you in your place? Anybody? Ever? You're like, man, you made me feel so dumb that, oh, educate me because I feel stupid. I'm going to let you know a little secret. When we're humble, people usually respond back in humility. And when we're arrogant, people usually respond back with pride. That's the way that it usually goes. The third thing I want to point out from Philip's approach is that Philip just uses the word. They just start reading straight from Isaiah. It says, now the passage of scripture that he was reading was this, like a sheep that was led to the slaughter, a lamb before the shearer is silent, he opened not his mouth. And not only uses the word, but he guides him through it. The most powerful tool you have in evangelism is your Bible. In recent years, it's been a popular belief that's crept into apologetics. Apologetics just means the defense of the faith that people that don't believe in the Bible, you need to convince them that the Bible is truth before you can use the Bible. That is nonsensical fairy tale garbage. The Bible is truth. We don't make the Bible truth. The Bible is truth. So stand on it unapologetically but humbly. And the fourth thing that I want to point out about his posture is evangelism was not about a process, it was about a person. You see, skipping down to verse 36, it says, uh, verse 35, then Philip opened his mouth and began with this, the scripture told him the good news about Jesus. The passage 
that he uses should tell us all that we know, need to know to present the good news about Jesus. The whole prophecy in Isaiah that they're quoting from is some of those powerful, loving words about what Jesus accomplished for us and his atoning death on the cross in the whole Bible. Verse 35 makes it so clear that Philip told him good news about Jesus. He wasn't presenting a data to him. He was presenting a person to him, and that person is infinitely beautiful. And then conversion, we see, brought about obedience and further proclamation of the gospel. Look at verses 36 through 38 as we uh, prepare to close up. It says, as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, see, here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch. And he baptized them. So immediately... After conversion, this man wants to be baptized. Baptism is supposed to be one of our first acts of obedience after becoming a Christian and placing our faith in Jesus Christ. I don't know where it's come in, but I hear it all the time when I talk to people that have been Christians for a long time, and they're like, I'm just not ready for that yet. I'm just not ready for the idea of baptism. Look, if you've put your faith in Jesus and you have a genuine saving faith in Jesus, you're ready for baptism. And not only are you ready, you're commanded. There is an obedience that is predicated upon the preaching and the receiving of the gospel in this text. And oh, by the way, did I mention we have baptisms next week? (laughs) And obedience brought about joy. Look at verse 39. It says, And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. This makes me think of, um, come here for a second, Andrew, before I close, of the tears that streamed down this man's face when we had the privilege to baptize him. I had the joy of, of watching this guy, who's now one of our deacons, be converted and got to be there for his baptism. And I got to watch him come up out of the water and try to share and not be able to because there were just tears of joy strolling down his face. Why were there tears of joy strolling down your face, brother? I just spent most of my life, um, I was church most of my life and um, sat in a church just like this one and I had no relationship with Jesus Christ. Um, I heard the gospel every week. Um, My old church would do an altar call every week and I would just sit in my seat seat like a stone. Um, So I was in a place where I didn't think that I I was able to, I knew that I couldn't come to Christ on my own. I knew it was a work of Christ. Um, I look back now and I know that um, I had no part in my salvation, that it was Christ alone who called me. He called me in a community group, uh, turned my world upside down, um, just opened my eyes, and my baptism was just going below the water. Um, being, being put to death, my old sinful, broken heart, um, and being raised to newness of life in Christ. Um, That's why we do what we do. And it's just, um, and it's just all I can do now is to serve Him and to, to just to be obedient to Him. I, I fall short and I fail every single day, but I know it's His grace and mercy that. Um, has pulled me out of, out of death and given me life.
remember the tears of joy bringing my son and my daughter up out of the water and being able to look at my son and say, I baptize you, my brother, and be able to call my son, my brother, and my daughter, my sister, in Christ. I remember that joy proclaiming, you're my brother now. I've heard so many people who have shared the joy of coming out of the water, and they use this common word throughout each of their testimonies. They say, I felt washed. I felt like I was made new. Look, baptism doesn't wash you. The cross does. The blood of Jesus does. But it's a picture of that washing that took place at the cross and our participation that we were in Him when He died. We were in Him when He rose victorious and conquered death for all of life. We were in Him. We were made new. That's what baptism is a picture of. And they rejoiced because of it. And then in the last verse, you see in verse 38, that He went on and guess what He kept doing? kept preaching the gospel. The process continued. So a couple questions for you as we close. Do you live like somebody who is sent? I, I can't answer that question for you, but it is a question that you should answer. Do you live like somebody who is sent? Can you actually name somebody? Or do you have faces that go through your mind when I ask you if you live like somebody who is sent? I remember somebody asking me that in a Bible that I still have. He said, write down the five names of the people that you would just beg God if he was there, if Jesus was right, right in front of you and just said, God, please save me. Save these five people. I said, if you can't, you should reconsider why you're at this church planting conference because you're probably going into it for the wrong reasons. And I remember just being like rocked by that. And I wrote their names in my Bible and I remember to pray for them regularly? Do you have faces that actually come to mind that you've been sent to? Do you embrace the joy of being sent rather than seeing it as obligatory? Have you experienced the joy and the power of being washed and the joy that comes along with it? And do you embrace the fact of the power of sending out 200 missionaries to tell the world of a Savior who stopped at nothing to ransom their souls from death? is more powerful than expecting lost people to find their way to us. For communion, I want to read the same text that the Ethiopian is reading. I'm going to ask if the communion servers would come forward and pass out the elements as I read from Isaiah 53, and then we're going to have a song of reflection. But this is the text that he was reading. This is a time if you've Put your faith in Jesus. This is for you. If you haven't, please abstain um, because we don't want this to be an empty ritual. Um, but if you have, then let's celebrate with him and rejoice. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground that had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected of man, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has bore our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his wounds we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid on him 
the iniquity of us all. That's what we celebrate as we partake of communion. So let's reflect on that as we're led in song.